0: Chapter 5. Towards a Definition of Corruption Corruption comes in many shapes and forms. The corrupt are continuously and deviously devising fresh ways of satisfying their greed and lack of regard for the promotion of the common good. Legislatures seek to counter this propensity by passing ever more complex laws to rein in corrupt activities of all kinds. Prosecutors, on the other hand, prefer to stick to the tried and tested fraud, theft, and embezzlement charges which they find easier to prove and to bring new cases within the parameters of a complex new definition as yet untested by the courts in criminal litigation. Proving the commission of the crime of corruption is a difficult task. Corruption is conducted in secret and the victims of the crime all too often do not even know that the crime has been committed. The harm done all too often manifests itself long after the crime is completed. This truism does not imply that corruption is a victimless crime. Far from it. As Judge Navi Pillay, former UN Human Rights Commissioner, has said, corruption kills. Very properly, the onus of proof of the crime of corruption is set at the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. An acquittal follows an explanation by those accused that is reasonably possibly true. It is easy then to see why prosecutors prefer the traditional common law charges rather than the formulation of charges conforming to convoluted definitions contained in legislation. A working definition of corruption that is widely used by those who study corruption is the abuse of public office for private gain. This definition would cover anything from straight capture and kleptocracy on the one hand to a traffic officer asking for cool drink money at a roadblock on the other. Some prefer to put emphasis on the role of the most frequent victims of crimes by calling corruption theft from the poor. The advantage of doing so is that it introduces into public discourse the notion that it is the poor who suffer when corruption is left unchecked by the Criminal Justice Administration. This is particularly the position in states that should know better than to allow impunity to grow within their borders. As public money is often diverted from serving the public weal to the pockets of the corrupt, It is fair to regard this form of crime as theft from the poor because resources intended for their benefit are lost. The sociology of a culture of impunity is interesting. Studies show that in any large population, there's always a section of the population that is absolutely incorruptible
1: no matter what
0: the conditions on the ground are at any given time. These incorruptibles make up about 10% of the population. At the other end of the scale are those who are always corrupt, the sociopaths, the psychopaths, and those too prone to giving in to their greed. This group is also around 10% of the population. The 80% in between could go either way, depending on the conditions and circumstances in society. The thought of getting caught and punished for corrupt activities is enough to keep most on the straight and narrow path. The spectre of more and more people getting away with their corrupt activities tends to encourage those in the large middle group to join the corrupt. The argument goes, others are enjoying their impunity from any consequences, now reaping the ill-gotten rewards of their wrongdoing. Why should we not join them? The wavering middle group asks this in justification of a move towards the criminality of corruption based on the notion that it is too easy to get away with it in given circumstances. It is the knowledge that if one acts corruptly, one has committed a crime, that the state will indubitably investigate, prosecute, try and punish, using the full might of the law to do so that keeps folk honest. If that knowledge is the lived experience of a society, if the criminal justice administration is working as it should, and if those convicted are suitably punished and held up as examples to deter others from straying from the proverbial path of righteousness, then all or most of the 80% joins the incorruptible group while a functioning criminal justice administration is in place. For many, although corruption is a crime punishable by law, corruption with impunity is a political problem rather than a legal or criminal one. The characterization of corruption with impunity as a political problem derives from the will of society to see to it that the corrupt do not enjoy impunity from the consequences of their actions. Well protected whistleblowers skilled investigators, keen prosecutors, as well as judges and jailers who uphold the law are the surest way to end corruption with impunity. The freedom from punishment which allows corruption to grow exponentially as those with the opportunity to do so succumb to the temptation to migrate from the group in the middle of the spectrum to the group which is incorrigibly corrupt. The problem is best described as a political one because the political will to allocate sufficient resources to combating corruption is the first and most basic ingredient of any effort to end impunity. Without specialist investigators and prosecutors, the criminal dockets cannot be made trial-ready. Without courts with the three I qualities of independence, integrity and impartiality, And without jailers who effect punishment and administer correctional services properly, the political will is lacking, the opportunities for impunity are present, and the temptation to migrate from the large middle group to the corrupt one is an ever present temptation. For the countering of corruption to succeed, it is necessary that adequate resources be made available for all involved in the various functions. Necessary to detect, investigate, prosecute, try, and punish the corrupt. In Hong Kong, for example, there is no debate around the budgetary allocation. It has long been agreed that a set percentage of the budget is for anti corruption efforts and that amount is made available. Accordingly, countering corruption is effectively and efficiently carried out in Hong Kong. The Independent Commission Against Corruption has had notable success on the island, which was once known as a hotbed of corruption. It is living proof that it is possible to reverse the gains of the corrupt, provided the political will to do so is available. Some would have it that corruption should be categorized according to its seriousness. Petty corruption among the lower-ranking civil servants is regarded as being not as serious a problem as grand corruption involving powerful politicians and wealthy captains of business and industry. State capture is the corrupt process according to which the state is repurposed to serve the interests of those who capture it instead of the public interest. It is arguably the most virulent form of corruption and the type of corruption most difficult to counter. At the other end of the scale is the traffic officer, underpaid and tired at the end of his shift, who asks at a roadblock for cool drink money. Surely a form of corruption that is easily dealt with if whistleblowers come forward with their cell phone recordings of the transaction proposed by the traffic officer. The truth is that all corruption is a crime and that a zero-tolerance approach of the kind instituted in New York by its former mayor, Rudolf Giuliani, is applicable. Under Giuliani appointee, Police Commissioner Bill Bratton adopted an aggressive enforcement and deterrence strategy based on James Q. Wilson's broken windows research. This strategy involved crackdowns on relatively minor offences such as graffiti, turnstile jumping and aggressive squeegee men, on the principle that it would send a message that order would be maintained and that the city would be cleaned up. The mayor declared and decided that not a single broken window pane should be left unattended in New York in order to demonstrate that crime would not be tolerated or condoned on his watch. The strategy worked, and life in New York improved considerably. So too with corruption, certainly at the level of the state. It is possible, using properly structured criminal justice administration, vigilant parliamentary oversight, well-resourced and well-trained officials of the criminal justice administration operating with public buy-in to deal with the crime of corruption within the confines of the National Criminal Justice Administration. It is with kleptocracy, grand corruption and state capture that problems can and do arise. If those involved in these forms of corruption are able to take control of the levers of power in the Criminal Justice Administration then impunity abounds and the capacity of the state to do anything to counter it is holed below the waterline. The problem is neatly summed up by Judges Goldstone and Wolfe in their article published in the Boston Globe in April 2020. They point out, Grand corruption does not flourish because of a lack of laws. There are 187 nations party To the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. Almost all of them have laws prohibiting extortion, bribery, money laundering and misappropriation of national resources. They also have an international obligation to enforce those laws against their corrupt leaders. However, kleptocrats enjoy impunity in their own countries because they control the administration of justice. They will not permit the prosecution and punishment of their collaborators and themselves. For these reasons, they advocate the establishment of an international anti-corruption court that is able to end the impunity of those involved in grand corruption, kleptocracy, and state capture. Sometimes the political will to counter corruption is expressed in ways that are counterproductive. The passing of laws with convoluted requirements and weird presumptions does not signal an end to the impunity of the corrupt. What, for example, is a prosecutor preparing a charge sheet to arraign a corrupt civil servant, politician, and a businessman meant to make of a definition such as that in the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act, called PRECA, passed by the South African Parliament in 2003. This act creates the general offence of corruption. Any person who directly or indirectly a accepts or agrees or offers to accept any gratification from any other person, whether for the benefit of himself or herself or for the benefit of another person, or B... Gives or agrees or offers to give to any other person any gratification, whether for the benefit of that other person or for the benefit of another person, in order to act personally or by influencing another person so to act in a manner that one amounts to the double A illegal, dishonest, unauthorized, incomplete, or biased, or double B misuse or selling of information or material acquired in the course of the exercise, carrying out, or performance of any powers, duties, or functions arising out of a constitutional, statutory, contractual, or any other legal obligation. Two, that amounts to double A, the abuse of a position of authority, double B, a breach of trust, or double C, the violation of a legal duty or a set of rules, three, designed to achieve an unjustified result, or four, that amounts to any other unauthorized or improper inducement to do or not to do anything, is guilty of the offense of corruption. These words have been very thoughtfully and helpfully deciphered by civil society organization Corruption Watch, which maintain that they mean the general offence of corruption under PRECA is giving or offering to give someone in a position of power gratification to act in a certain manner. What does gratification mean? Money, a donation, a vote, a service or a favour, employment, etc. It should come as no surprise to learn that in the authoritative work The Law of South Africa, the criminal law volume contains a description and discussion of the statutory offenses of corruption and its wordy general offense of corruption. There is not a single decided case in which this definition has come up for debate or discussion. The prosecution service appears simply not to be using the act. Whether corruption is given a complex definition, always regarded as theft from the poor or the abuse of public office for private gain, the fact remains that corruption with impunity is a scourge of our times. It requires decisive action if it is to be prevented from causing the collapse of civilization, whether through stray viruses or in some other way. When it comes to defining corruption, it is possible to sympathize with Justice Potter Stewart in the U.S. Supreme Court 1964 decision concerning the definition of obscenity. He wrote... I shall not today attempt to further define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description, hardcore pornography, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. It is important that the general public should know corruption when it sees it, and, more importantly, when it identifies the need to counter it effectively and efficiently.